Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and across the Six Nations as Europe's elite go head-to-head in rugby's oldest international competition. Each week, we'll be looking at the QBE predictor, which forecasts the results of each round of matches. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe now and download wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening. From London, I'm Rochelle Travers, and this is The Standard. We have travelled a long road together in a short amount of time. Over the last two weeks, we have worked very hard to secure a better future for our people and our planet. We should be proud of our historic achievement. COP28 President Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber speaking there, confirming a historic deal on fossil fuels has been reached at the summit in Dubai. I invite the CMA to adopt the draft decision entitled Outcome of the First Global Stocktake. Hearing no objection, it is so decided. Following the announcement that the global stocktake agreement had been finalised, members of the delegations from some 200 countries gave a standing ovation, with many even embracing each other. The UN says it marks the beginning of the end for the fossil fuel era. However, not everyone is satisfied with the agreement. Many wanted the deal to contain a commitment to phasing out fossil fuels, not just transitioning away from using them. A representative from Samoa, speaking on behalf of a coalition of small island states, said the deal had been adopted when they weren't in the room, and that it didn't go far enough to protect their homes, some of the most vulnerable places to things like flooding as a result of climate change. I'm now joined by Juliet Kinsman, sustainability expert and presenter of our Sustainable Travel podcast series. Juliet attended this year's summit and actually spoke at the extreme hangout stage at COP28. So Juliet, why exactly is this deal at COP28 being called historic? Well, we've had almost three decades of climate negotiations and to have the final text have such an emphasis on fossil fuels is really, really a landmark because you know, the deal's not perfect. It's definitely not perfect. Sustainability is never perfect. It's a significant step towards decarbonisation. What I see it as is we've created a wanted poster for the real perpetrators, the extractors and the exporters of fossil fuels. And that is what we needed. There's been backlash against the deal. Many wanted to see a commitment to specifically phasing out fossil fuels rather than just agreeing to move away from them. Why is the wording to a deal like this so crucial? 
you know, in all of this, it's always it's always about the language and the loopholes. And there's a massive difference between, you know, a statement that we're all going to try and do better rather than actual concrete action plans. And I think I imagine if you're a small, low lying island nation, uh, you feel really frustrated at these huge countries where their economies benefit so greatly from the continued use of fossil fuels. What else would you like to have seen in this agreement? I think what everyone's talking about is we need really clear adaptation plans. And I'm not sure that's there. The the climate emergency isn't on the horizon. It is right here with us. There are 8 billion people in the world. You know, arguably half of those, 4 billion, are already experiencing it. So you can imagine that they need to see a concrete adaptation plan now. Juliet, you're an expert in sustainable travel. Do you think that issue was discussed enough during this summit? It's interesting because um, obviously tourism, it employs one in 10 people in the world, but we don't really have a seat at the table in these conversations. And when I was at COP in Dubai, what I did hear was from a lot of young people, a lot of indigenous people, Pacific nations, you know, Pacific Island nations such as the Marshall Islands. These all intersect greatly with travel. And it's it it's definitely not discussed enough. It's not represented. I think tourism and hospitality really can be a powerful tool to, to unlock climate solutions. Uh, it doesn't feature on the dedicated days or the thematics. Uh, it's great to see food systems and health get a lot more airtime. Um, but travel, we really, those businesses and us as consumers, when we travel, our decisions can ha- have a big impact on overall global carbon emissions. Do you think that this so-called landmark deal will make a real tangible difference when it comes to climate change? The challenge is we're really kind of past the tipping point. Um, it's definitely a movement in the right direction. I still think so many people are disconnected, whether it's a corporate or whether us as consumers, they're so disconnected from what it really means to change our ways and our lifestyles. And right before COP, it was, you know, the president mentioned, I think he said, those who live luxury lifestyles shouldn't have to change them. And that's just the attitude we have to shift. Let's go to the ads. After the break, sustainability expert Juliet Kinsman on whether COP28 will go down as a success in the history books. Welcome back. Still with me is sustainability expert Juliet Kinsman. Greta Thunberg has previously called climate summits like COP just blah, 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 meaning all talk and no action. Are they really the answer when it comes to fighting climate change? I have to confess, I always felt that way inclined myself. So I felt it was really important to see what COP was all about. And I think people should understand it's sort of divided into two camps. You've got the the blue zone, which is the United Nations. That's all the negotiators, the bureaucrats, uh, the politicians. And, and you've got all the, all the countries, all the member countries presenting what they need to do and want to do around climate. But then you've got this green zone. And that's where lots of, well, it's open to the public. In this case, in Dubai, it was free. You've got storytellers, you've got entrepreneurs. And I think a lot of those conversations and connections really will lead to change. But of course, in terms of a metric for success, we'll never know that or see that. And as a curator from the Natural History Museum said there, which I think summed it up for me is, at least we have COP. It is the world's biggest climate conference. At least we have all these conversations happening. The UK government has faced criticism for making U-turns on a number of green policies and previous pledges to reach net zero. Do you think they will now have to reassess their policies? 
So if you're asking me, do I think they have to? I mean, I'm going to answer, yes, absolutely, they have to, and we have to. Do I think they will? It's it's difficult because the economy, and it's all about the money, right? Everything that's going on in the world, politics, money, it's removing a huge part of the economy. So it's it's, as we know, with politics and governments, they're all about short-term goals, and we need some really, really serious long-term targets made and kept to, and they don't have agency on the future. So they'll they'll just really look at, at the economy right now so they can talk about growth, and, and that's their metric for success. But yes, absolutely, we need to transition faster to green energy. Do you think people will look back at COP28 as a success? Trying to predict how history will remember any of these uh, conferences is tough. We're not doing enough fast enough. So history is not going to remember anybody in charge favorably at this rate. Absolutely not. There are 198 countries that had to chip in. There are many of those countries in a few decades that, frankly, will be underwater. So it, it depends. I don't think we're doing enough fast enough. You actually attended this year's summit and gave a talk at one of the stages whilst you were there. What were some of your main takeaways from COP28? My personal experience of COP, well, first of all, it felt a little bit of a nonsense going to to a a country and a destination that defies nature that is, is so built absolutely on oil money. So it was by far the biggest COP. And when I first arrived, it felt a bit like a sustainability Disneyland. In the blue zone, as I've said, you know, in the blue zone, the United Nations area, you have lots of people in suits. And then you have the green zone. And I was sad there weren't more members of, of the general public. But I think before you can, you know, I think cynics and skeptics will completely dismiss COP overall. But without experiencing it, you can't see these moments which could be powerful, which make important connections. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a roller coaster, as with all of these things. In terms of the talks, I spent a lot of time at the extreme hangout in the green zone. And I heard firsthand from Indigenous people there about how, you know, how we can support their communities, how we can have more sensitive development. And I, one guy I heard from, Nigel Topping, again, he was in the extreme hangout. They have a whole, feels like a mini festival. He talked about ex- exponential change coming from exponential storytelling. And I think, you know, as, as he put it, we have the most important feedback loop coming between the stories we tell and their effect. And that's why we have to talk about this, not just in the context of governments and politicians, but with each other. We need stories of hope and optimism to really mobilize each other to do better. You know, I really, really think about greenwashing a lot. And they're going to be packing up all these ridiculous signs that say, unite, inspire, deliver, action. You know, where does that all go? There was so much single-use bannerage. Think of the livery, these skins on the buses. For me, it was a huge exercise in snappy slogans and copywriting. Honestly, these grand, state, huge billboards and pictures and the the Saudi Green Initiative pavilion was like a mini, honestly, a mini Disneyland of greenwashing. If you imagine greenwashing by definition is when any company or organization is talking about the green initiatives, which might make up 1% if you're lucky of their business's overall activity, yet it comprises, you know, 99% of all their storytelling. And there was a lot of greenwashing. Quite literally, I got caught in their little Instagram friendly fountain with all their green plastic plants. So Dubai's Expo City today, huge, sprawling. They'll be taking down all those signs. 
every bus had a, a sheath of, of, of COP28 livery, all of this wayfinding, where does it go? So much single use, it has to be. So I do worry about the carbon footprint of that actual conference. I talk a lot about return on emissions, ROE. Does COP28 have an ROE? I really hope so. I really hope everyone, the tens of thousands of people who attended, will really think about their carbon footprint and taking away something positive. You can read more on this story and others in the Standard newspaper or on our website, standard.co.uk. And that's it from this episode. This podcast will be back tomorrow at 4pm.